Let us pray. Most eternal and everlasting Father, we are thankful this evening for the privilege that you have granted us to gather together to study a portion of your word so that we can individually and jointly glorify your son Jesus Christ. We are aware that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's a request that the Holy Spirit will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this evening. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Still in Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. He reads, Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Now in the introduction of this section of Exodus 14 verses 19 through 20, we indicated that his exposition will be based on two lessons we believe the Holy Spirit wants us to learn. We have considered the first lesson which is that the Lord God of Israel is the same person as the angel of God, based on verse 19. Now we ended our consideration of this lesson by noting the movements of the angel of God and the pillar of cloud from the front of Israel's camp to their back. Now this was contrary to the positions of the Lord and the pillar of cloud in the 13th chapter of Exodus where both we are in front of Israel and never their back. So we indicated that the movement of the pillar of the cloud to uh, the back of the Israel's camp is for different functions that we promise to consider in our study this evening. Therefore, it is with the functions of the pillar of cloud that we begin our study this evening. Now, the, the functions of the cloud of, of the pillar of cloud in our passage leading to the second lesson of this section of Exodus chapter 14 verses 19 through 20. The second lesson is this. God knows how to protect you by putting a distance between you and the one wishing you harm. Again, the lesson God knows how to protect you by putting a distance between you and the one wishing to harm you. Before we show how this lesson is derived from verse 20, let me refresh your mind about what we said, that the lesson of Exodus 14 verses 19 through 20 will not be clearly understood without referencing Exodus chapter 13 
verses 21 and 22. Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. It reads, By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now, the, so the pillar of cloud in Exodus chapter 13 verses 21 through 22 functioned differently than in Exodus chapter 14 verses 19 through 20 that we are considering. Now in the 13th chapter, the pillar of cloud provided guidance regarding the direction of Israel's movement, but also provided them protection from the heat of the scorching sun that is was felt in the desert. Now during this phase of Israel's travels, they did not face any human threat as such. So the Lord knew that the, uh, the best functions of the pillar of cloud will be that of guidance and protection from debilitating effects of the heat of the sun, especially in the desert. However, by the time we get to the narrative, given in Exodus 14, 19 through 20, Israel's condition has changed. They were at that point being pursued by the Egyptian army and so were seized by fear as stated in Exodus chapter 14 verses 8 through 10. Exodus chapter 14 verse 8 reads, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Hahiroth, Opposdale Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israel looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Now it is true that in the 13th chapter of Exodus, the pillar of cloud never left the front of the people because of its function of guidance and protection that has nothing to do with human threat. But the change of situation that involved the threat of advancing army of the Egyptians called for God's protection of Israel to be different from that of the time when they did face uh, any when they did not face any human threat to their lives. In effect, the Lord knew the best way to protect his people until he will eliminate Israel's enemy that was in hot pursuit. 
So the point is that our God, who is omniscient, and who and whose plan cannot be thwarted by any human being, knows how to protect his own while accomplishing his plan. Does the Lord change the function of the pillar of cloud to meet the threats the Israelites face from the advancing army of the Egyptians? Now this is in keeping with the second lesson that we have stated, which again is that God knows how to protect you by putting a distance between you and the one wishing you harm. Now the movement of the pillar of cloud from the front of Israel's camp to its back is explained and all results in its function specified in Exodus 14 verse 20. Now the reason for stating that the movement of the pillar of cloud to the back of Israel's camp explains and all results in its function is because verse 20 in the Hebrew begins with a Hebrew particle that was not translated in the NIV and in majority of our English versions. Now the Hebrew particle is one that's used several times in the Old Testament scripture. And often it's translated and in our English versions as we find for example in the Living Bible and the new Jewish version, the Tanakhan. All began the verse with the conjunction and. Now this notwithstanding, the Hebrew particle has other uh, usages such as a marker of contrast so that it may be translated but, but as is done in the contemporary English version. It seems to me that a particle is used in verse 20 either to provide explanation, in which case it may be translated that is or to indicate results so that it may be translated so or thus as reflected in such English versions as the new American Standard Bible and the New Century versions. In other words, the particle is used to provide a further explanation of what it means that a pillar of clouds move from the front of Israel's camp uh, to, back, to their back, or that a particle provides the result of the movement, which may also be understood as stating the functions of the pillar of cloud. Now, any of these two interpretations make sense in the context. Now, this probably may be the case where the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that verse 20 not only provides explanation of what is meant by the pillar of cloud moving from the front to the back of Israel's camp, but also the result of this movement. Now, this result, given beginning in verse 20, should be understood as providing the functions of the pillar of cloud in its location at the back of Israel's camp. Now, the explanation and or the first function of the pillar of the cloud at the back of the camp of Israelites 
is to separate the Egyptians from the Israelites. As we read in Exodus 14 verse 20 where we are studying. It is coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Now this verbal phrase coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. As we have indicated provides an explanation of what it means that the pillar of cloud moved behind the camp of Israel. The explanation is that the movement of the pillar of cloud should be understood to mean that the pillar of cloud by moving to the back of Israel's camp was stationed between Israel's camp and the Egyptians' army. Now this explanation also means that the result of the movement of the pillar of cloud is the separation of the two groups so that its function is that of the separation of two groups. Now the translators of the NIV were being consistent in their translation of the Hebrew word in the phrase, look at that phrase, between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Now, when they use armies, that means the armies of Egypt and the armies of Israel. Now, the literal Hebrew actually reads the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Now, this is because the Hebrew word used may mean camp or army. However, we argued uh, in the consideration of the word in its first usage in Exodus 14 verse 19 last week, that the meaning in that verse is best taken with respect to Israel as a civilian camp. A civilian camp. Now that is temporary, of course, living quarters where a group of uh, people live together, although they were on the march that frequently involved military conflict later on in their movement. At the time that we are uh, dealing with, they have not started fighting anyone. That would change uh, shortly in this narrative, but for the moment, they are not fighting and therefore they are really not an army per se. Now Israel, again at this point in their travel, was not really an army, but a group of men, women and children, so that it is best to take the men in camp to translate our word as it relates to Israel. Now if we want to make a distinction then between Israel's camp and that of the Egyptians, then we could describe the Egyptians' camp as a military camp, hence an army, so that we have the reading, the armies of Egypt, and for Israel, and the camp of Israel. In that way we make a distinction. Now, however, for consistency in the meaning of the Hebrew word, it may be better to use the word camp, camp, to convey both groups of people separated by the pillar of cloud. In any case, the pillar of cloud was used by the Lord to separate Egyptian camp from that of the Israelites. This is in keeping with the second lesson that we are considering, which is that God knows how to protect you 
by putting a distance between you and the one wishing you harm. Now in applying this lesson, we should not think that a physical distance is necessary to protect the believer from the one that seeks to harm that individual. No. We should recognize that God knows the best way to protect you by using either physical space or other means that will keep you away from harm that is intended by someone who hates you or who wants your life when you are on this planet and your allotted time is not yet up. That is to say that God's plan for you on this planet has not been completed. So he will keep a distance. No matter what it is, it doesn't have to be a physical space, but there are other ways he can do to ensure that no harm comes to you until it is time for you to get out of this planet. Now this scripture conveys this principle though that God knows how to keep you from harm either through a physical distance or by any other means of separating you from the one that intends to harm you depending on his plan for you. Now we can illustrate this truth using two individuals in the scripture. Saul wanted to kill David and so he pursued him with some of his soldiers. On one occasion when Saul had David cornered that escape seemed impossible. The Lord separated David from Saul through a report that was no doubt God's doing as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 23 verses 24 through 29. First Samuel and hold on to First Samuel chapter twenty three, beginning at verse twenty-four. It is so they set out and went to Zeph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Meon in the Arabah south of Jishmon. Saul and his men began the search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Meon. When Saul had this, he went into the desert of Meon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them a messenger came to Saul saying come quickly the Philistines are ready in the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they called this place Selah 
Ham Mahalekot. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now there are two things that you can see here. God's plan for an individual can cause all kinds of things. Now Israel has been attacked right at this moment according to the text we're reading. Why? Because that's where God wants to get Saul out of the way, putting a distance between him and David. So he couldn't kill him. That's one thing you see. So that God can do whatever he wants to do for one person in order to fulfill his plan. Now, the other thing that you, you see here is just how God can work out things in ways that we don't even imagine. Who would have thought? They were closing in. There was no way for him to escape. But this is where God separated the two. On another occasion of Saul's pursuit of David, the Lord used physical distance in a cave to separate David from Saul, as we read still in 4 Samuel chapter 24, look at verses 3 and 4. First Samuel chapter twenty four verses three through four. It is he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Same cave. The man said, This is the day the Lord spoke of you when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now here is one thing that you when we say that you have to be careful when, when you're trying to apply scripture. Especially when somebody is trying to apply for you. You have to be very careful. Notice what these men say. They quote it. Yeah, the Lord says he's going to give David's enemy to his hand. But it wasn't that. But that's how they have applied it now. But that wasn't the right time. Because David knew he wasn't going to be the one that would kill Saul. So he ignored them. Anyway, cut part of his clothes. But the theory here is there's a space between Saul. He didn't know they were in the same place. So God put a space between them. And although David did what he needed to do in order to prove to Saul that he wasn't trying to kill him, despite his uh, paranoia about uh, David. Anyway, so here we see there's a distance. It's not much of the same kind of one that he used to distract him from attacking uh, David. Now Hezekiah was another individual that the Lord separated from the one seeking his harm by putting a distance between him and his enemy, although again using a report. Now during his reign of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, encamped 
around Jerusalem threatening to capture it. The Lord protected Hezekiah and Jerusalem by putting a distance between him and Sennacherib. Although the Lord used a report again that the king of Israel received, I mean king of uh, Assyria received as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 19 verses 6 to 10. Second Kings chapter 19 beginning of verse 6 it reads Isaiah said to them tell your master this is what the Lord says I mean they have been, they threatened everything the officers of Sennacherib have been threatening the king and so on say so this is what the Lord says do not be afraid of what you have heard. These words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put such a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with a sword. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left the cage, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now, Sennacherib received a report that Tahak, the Kushat king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Egypt, and the king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Now again, here you see, uh, Sennacherib had a very strong army. He was, he was one of the superpowers at that time. He has Jerusalem surrounded, or Judah, and they came in and threatened all they could and said, just surrender, we'll leave you alone. We'll just capture you and make you a slave and, and that'll be it. But Hezekiah trusted the Lord. And the people keep saying, well, he's deceiving you all because this God that he's trusting is not the God that uh, he destroyed his temples. Not knowing that what he destroyed was temples of idols. That Hezekiah was against. Anyway, based on that, they were poised to attack Jerusalem. And this is the way the Lord kept the distance. Again, by a report of an attack that he had to leave the siege of Jerusalem to go and attend to. So the father Sennacherib withdrew his army, implied that the Lord had put a distance between him and Hezekiah so that we could say that the Lord protected Hezekiah by putting a distance 
between him and Senecre that threatened his well-being as the king of Judah. Again, God used a report. So my point is, although we say he's going to put a distance, it doesn't always have to be a physical distance. It could be an action, it could be something he would do that would separate you from whatever harm that is intended to, to come to you. And I believe some of you have had a case. You've been at a spot, just no more than 10 minutes after you left that spot, there may be a rake or something. That had you been there, you've been into it. And you just wonder, how did that happen? Is this principle? God knows exactly how to remove you from danger. Put a distance between you and the, whatever it is that's threatening your life until he's ready for you to leave this planet. So the point that we're emphasizing then is that although the second lesson we're considering is that God knows how to protect you by putting a distance between you and the one wishing you harm. But that the manner in which he puts the distance between you and anyone wishing you harm does not always involve a physical distance or method. He can use whatever means he desires to keep you separated from the ones that seeks to harm you as a part of his protection. So what we're saying, although I'm using the expression one wishing you harm, but the whole problem uh, principle is this, he knows how to guide you in danger. That is to say, as I've used the illustration of people who just moved one in something, sometimes you've just moved a foot and something fell off from you that would have crushed your head if you were there. I mean, all of those things are part of this lesson. That he knows exactly how to do it. As long as it's not your time to get out of this planet, or unless he has something else he wants to teach you. But other than that, uh, he, he will keep a distance, one way or the other, in order to ensure that you are protected. So all I'm saying is that he can use whatever means he desires to keep you separated from ones that seek to harm you as part of his protection. Now anyway, the first function then of the pillar of cloud in the passage of Exodus 14, 19 verse uh, through 20 that we are considering is that of separation of the Israelites from the Egyptians. Now this first function is reiterated later as we note after considering the second function of the pillar of cloud given in our passage. The second function of the pillar of cloud is to illuminate the camp of Israel while keeping the camp of the Egyptians in darkness. It is this function that is given then in the clause of Exodus chapter 14 verse 20 where we're starting again it says it reads, throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. Now through this speaking the Hebrew of this sentence is difficult to translate as reflected in many ways 
it has been translated in various our various English versions. For example, the Tanaka or the New Jewish Version, consider one of the micro translation of the Hebrew into English, that reads something like this. There was the cloud with darkness, and it cast a spell upon the night. Let me read, read that again. There, there, I mean, thus, there was the cloud with darkness, and it cast a spell upon the night. Now, the translation of the NIV is interpretative, although a good one, probably based on the known work of God in Egypt, while the Israelites were still in it, as I'm going to explain. Now, we say this because the clause throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. It's more literally from the Hebrew, it is this way. And there was the darkness and the cloud, and it lit up the night. And it lit up the night. That's one based on the Masoretic text, which is the, uh, the Hebrew text from which our English versions are translated. Now, the Septuagint, which is another. Uh, version of manuscript of the Hebrew Bible, they gave a different reading to this clause that I told you is very it's not that easy to translate. Look at what they what they said about or how they translated it in the Septuagint. Just listen carefully. It reads but I mean instead of we have it gave light to the night, there's reads this way. And there was darkness, and deep darkness, and so the night passed. Let me repeat that. That's what the, the Septuagint reads. And there was darkness, and deep darkness, and so the night passed. Doesn't sound anything like what you have in the NIV. Now, this difference notwithstanding, we accept the reading that is given in the Masoretic text that is, of course, reflected in the literal translation that we gave you, which is, and there was the darkness and the cloud, and it lit up the night. That's what the Masoretic text reads. Now, an interpretation of the literal Hebrew is one that is given in the NIV, that implies that a pillar of cloud functions in two ways. On the one hand, it is associated with darkness. And on the other hand, it is associated with light. Thus, when the translators of the NIV indicated that a pillar of cloud uh, brought light on one side and darkness on the other side, they gave what we will consider a proper interpretation of the Hebrew text. 
That is an interpretation, not a translation per se. It is an interpretative translation. Now the interpretation of the NIV implies that the Israelites had light from the pillar of cloud, while the Egyptians had darkness on their side. Now this interpretation is indeed what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. This is because such interpretation parallels the plague of darkness. Now you see, remember, in the plague of darkness, the territory of where the Egyptians lived suffered darkness. And they were immobilized because of darkness. While the Israelites had light. And they lived their normal lives. As we have studied in Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Exodus Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. It is, So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Does then, it's not difficult then uh, to conceive that if the pillar of cloud gave, gave light on one side and darkness on the other side, that a side with light had to be the camp of the Israelites while the side with darkness had to be the Egyptian's camp. In effect, the Lord performed a miracle that caused light to be on the side of the Israelites and not on the side of the Egyptians. Now on the side of the Egyptians, God let creation remain the way he created without interfering. See, the Lord had given darkness to rule the night, except on the occasion when there is moon, as indicated in Genesis chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Now we live... Uh, uh, in a time we have all this light so people don't even notice the moon so to say, every now and then we do now I know that uh, some of you came close to seeing what a pitch darkness was, very close but not much, during when we had that Katrina event when there was no light most people were really, I mean they saw real darkness but I know from experience what pitch darkness is Having been in a jungle during a war where you can't see, soldiers have to almost touch each other's uh, uh, soldiers in order to move because of pitch darkness. It's an awful thing to see or even to experience. 
But that's the natural thing God has. Unless there is moon, otherwise there will be total darkness at night. And this is because, go back to the creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, it is, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and this lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. So, if there's no moon, it's going to be dark. So, to change this rule requires a miracle. That's the point. That if there's no moon, and again, I know it's hard for most of us to conceive of a place without light, because you're used to electricity and all that. But if you can conceive it, if there's no moon and there's no light, you'll be in a kind of darkness. So, this is what we have here. So, I'm saying that to change this rule then, that is for the night, to have light instead of darkness, when there is no moon, or to cause darkness if it is during full moon. In other words, if there is full moon and here there is darkness, something has also changed. So anyway, the father decided of the camp of the Egyptians had darkness implies either that the event of the pursuits of the Egyptian army occurred when there was no moon phase in Egypt or that the Lord miraculously darkened the moon so that there was no light of any kind among the Egyptians. When there is full moon, people could travel at night so that the father of the Egyptians were unable to move implies that there was total darkness on their side. That the presence of the light on the side of the Israelites and darkness on the side of the Egyptians is a reminder of the truth that God usually makes a distinction between believers and unbelievers. As we may gather from Proverbs chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. Proverbs chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. Proverbs chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. It reads, The path of the righteous is like, is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of the day. But the word of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. So here, there's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now this distinction is really a distinction between believers and unbelievers. And that same distinction is applied more clearly 
in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 18. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 18. Malachi chapter 3 verse 18 reads And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. God usually makes a distinction between those who serve him and those who do not. Sometimes, as maybe next week we'll talk a little more about it, sometimes it may not be that clear, but yes, it's always a distinction. Now, so the light that was on the side of the Israelites remained only to them, so that the Egyptians did not know or recognize that while they were in darkness, the Israelites had light, since the darkness keeps them from seeing the light. Now this reality should cause us to recognize that unbelievers do not see the light we see. They do not experience the goodness of God that we experience. See they think that we are on the same situation of life than they are. No, 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 we're not. We are recipients of God's goodness. So we should live that way though, being mindful that unbelievers may not recognize that we are enjoying God's goodness. Even when we may be facing the same national or local disasters as unbelievers, we should still recognize that unless we are also being judged for our failures, that we are different and remain recipients of God's goodness. That distinction. So we can, in a sense, see the misery of unbelievers, but they cannot truly see our blessings, although in God's goodness they may notice some of our blessings, but they still are blind to the significance or the source of our blessing. But we know the source. They can see it. They don't understand it. But because they are in darkness. Therefore, we should appreciate though, God's goodness to us. And try to function in such a way that we bring the goodness of Christ to some. While others are in darkness. In keeping with the assertion of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It is, for we are to God the aroma of Christ 
among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one where a smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Not all can do that unless we are empowered by God Himself. So there's no doubt then that light and darkness in Exodus 14 verse 20 are used in physical senses, but there are implied spiritual realities associated with them in the description of their effects on the Israelites and on the Egyptians. Now darkness that was on the side of the camp of the Egyptians conveys God's displeasure and judgment on them. You see, darkness is used figuratively for God's judgment on unbelievers. Thus, darkness as judgment is used to describe those who are unbelievers and so rely on their own wits. So to say, as we read in Job chapter 5 verses 13 and 14. Job Job chapter 5 verses 13 and 14 It is He catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily as swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the, in the daytime. At noon, they grope as in the night. In other words, God brings judgment. Now, this is one of those things in a passage that I've explained to you a long time ago from Proverbs 20, uh, 20 and 30, 20 about children and their parents. Why it is a very dangerous thing for a child to be rebellious towards the parents and don't listen to what the parents are telling them. Because the Bible is clear, if you do that, at some point in your life, you will be one of those at noon, you group up in the, dark, in the light, in the, in the darkness, because of judgment that God brings. And I've explained this to you several times, that what happens is, if you grow up rebellious, God's judgment will be upon you. And it shows up as you begin to grow in your life. Many times, every, you look at things that are looking very good for you. Suddenly, it vanishes. You may be in a job, doing well, waiting for the next promotion. It never comes. Instead, you get fired. Those are the kind of things that happens because of Somebody groping up as in the, in the night because they refuse to obey their parents and that is what will turn up their light even though everything seems to be going well for them. So anyway, darkness is also used to represent the stress of the unfaithful Israelites that prophet Isaiah described in Isaiah Chapter 5, verse 20. Isaiah, 
Oh, sorry. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 13, not 20. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 13. It reads, In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even light will be darkened by the clouds. That's when God brings judgment. Now darkness here probably refers to an advancing army against Israel. But the fact that the word is associated with distress implies that darkness describes a situation that is painful. Now that aside, we contend that darkness that is on the side of the Egyptians describes not only God's judgment on them, but a commentary of their spiritual status. They are in darkness, in the soul, otherwise they will not be pursuing the Israelites after they have suffered series of plagues in the hand of the God of the Hebrews. It is the spiritual blindness that, were, that they were under that kept them from recognizing that it was futile to fight against God since Israel was delivered out of slavery by God through Moses. So one of those things, when a person is in darkness, when a person is under God's judgment, they don't think, they don't reason. I mean, this is one day club say, man, these people have cost us so much, especially losing of the firstborn uh, children. They should have just backed up, but they didn't do that. Because part of this is so God's plan will be uh, unfolded. So, they couldn't listen, they couldn't reason, because they were in spiritual darkness. So, although the darkness signified for the Egyptian God's judgment on them, but light on the side of the Israelites symbolized God's goodness and favor to them. Light in the passage of Exodus 14 verse 20, should remind us then of the goodness of God. See, Israel had complained to Moses for bringing them out to face the deaths in the hands of the Egyptians, as we have considered also in Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. Exodus Chapter 14, look at verse 10, reads, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no grace in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So despite this grumbling of the Israelites, God protected them by giving them light while giving Egyptians the darkness. There is only one possible explanation of this blessing that the Israelites enjoyed. It is that they were favored by God. That is that they were recipients of the grace of God, assembled by light, and that could, uh, that favor 
is also it's something that we can read out from Ezra chapter 9 verse 8. The favor of God, which I believe and I, I, I would think so, that if every one of us, if we enjoy his great favor, we know that it's out of his goodness because not one human being deserves his goodness. Here it reads, Ezra 9 verse 8 says, But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so, our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. God's goodness revealed in many, many ways. So anyway, Israel did not deserve the light while the Egyptians were in darkness. The explanation for this distinction, as we have said, is God's favor or God's grace. Of course, God must remain faithful to his word. He promised to bring the Israelites to the land of Canaan. So nothing was going to stop it. Hence, God not only showed his grace to Israel through the provision of life, but he also demonstrated that he remained faithful to his promise. So in any event, Moses repeats the first function of the pillar of cloud, which is the separation of the Egyptians from the uh, Israelites. It is this function then that is given in the last clause of where we're studying, Exodus 14 verse 20. The last clause again says, So neither went near the other all night long. So this clause stays in the blessing of the Israelites, since they were the ones being pursued by the Egyptians. In effect, this clause describes mostly the impact of darkness on the Egyptians, since they were not able to uh, move in pursuit of the Israelites. So the Israelites themselves did not move, and perhaps we are more at ease if they did not see the Egyptians move. So they thought everything was fine. If they're not moving, we're not moving. So we are saying that the Israelites could look back at darkness and realize that it was impossible for the Egyptians to be on the move. And so the Israelites could be at rest, knowing that God has put a distance between them and the Egyptians. Hence the lesson that we are considering, that we have considered, which again is that God, God knows how to protect you by putting a distance between you and anyone wishing you harm. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will keep us recognizing your goodness in keeping us safe. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.